When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. New York's Greenwich Village is considered one of the city's liveliest neighborhoods. And it's where former Wall Street Journal science writer Robert Lee Holtz, who goes by Lee, has lived for more than a decade. He's seen the neighborhood evolve over the years, but wasn't prepared for how deserted it became when COVID-19 erupted. During lockdown, there was nobody here. Nobody here at all. To keep from going stir-crazy in his urban apartment, Lee forced himself to get up and out. He took daily walks in nearby Washington Square Park. It's nearly 10 acres of urban green space in the center of the neighborhood. Collective memory may already be fading, but in those early days of the pandemic in the U.S., New York City was the epicenter Portable morgues were positioned in many neighborhoods, and there was one right up the block from Lee. To be able to breathe fresh air, to be able to, you know, uh, be part of a life scheme that was larger than my apartment was just so settling and calming and really made me feel cushioned against um, all of the sort of unpleasant and strange things. And it was during those forced constitutionals that Lee noticed some longtime residents that he never really took much notice of before the lockdown. The birds. It was the first time I heard all these birds uh, singing, and it was loud. When we visited the park on a recent weekday afternoon, the crowds were back, and many in the avian community apparently never left. We came close, they quieted down. Lee says the birdsong he heard on those walks during lockdown gave him hope during a dark time for the city and for the world. During the pandemic, several studies found evidence that being exposed to nature can benefit our mental health and well-being. One survey found that people who had access to an outdoor space or even just a green view reported increased levels of life satisfaction, along with decreased depression, anxiety, and loneliness. And our gateway to that natural world is often birdsong. There are several studies that find it's how many of us build and maintain a connection to nature. But even though Lee was noticing birds singing more, and there is some evidence from the pandemic that some bird species were singing more when human activity stalled during COVID-related lockdowns, The perception was deceptive in a way, because numerous studies show that bird populations are declining at an alarming rate. And with those bird populations dropping, bird songs, one of the most impactful ways humans perceive the natural world, they're diminishing too. 
How do we know that there are less songs, though? I mean, when we pop out into our backyards or visit a local park like Lee did, we still hear the birds. We hear plenty of birds in some cases. But research shows that the types of bird species we hear and how those birds vocalize may be changing. In some cases, those different chirps and squawks could even impact bird evolution. One group of researchers wanted to focus on what those declines sound like to us humans. From the Wall Street Journal, this is The Future of Everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, Robert Lee Holtz and I look at why reconstructing bird soundscapes of the past could open our ears to what we're missing in the future and help us more viscerally understand this world of birdsong that we're losing. So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right! Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. The pandemic changed the backdrop of many workspaces. I'm in a closet right now in my apartment in New York City, waiting for the giant building's heat system to stop vibrating the entire space. Work from home can also mean staring into a backyard instead of out of an urban or suburban office window. And there's evidence that people have been taking notice of that life outside the window. Several reports have documented a dramatic jump in backyard bird seed sales since 2020. Sales of bird identification apps like the Merlin Bird ID and eBird have mushroomed. The National Audubon Society reported that downloads of its own bird ID app nearly doubled in March 2020 from the same month in the prior year. And while there have been fluctuations in use, Audubon says last July there was another 100% year-over-year increase in its app downloads. But an overwhelming amount of data show that the avian ensembles people hear today that they think are so magnificent, they're actually, in many cases, sounding a bit thin to a trained ear. Dr. Simon Butler is an associate professor at the University of East Anglia, He's the senior author on a paper published last November in Nature Communications that worked to make an historical audio record of birdsong over time. He did it because he wanted people to understand what it sounds like when we lose birds. There's lots of information coming through about changes in biodiversity. We know across North America, there was a paper out a few years ago reporting 3 billion birds being lost from the American avifauna. In Europe, we've had a similar paper out in the last few weeks recording 600 million birds in the last four decades or so. The paper Butler's referring to there estimated that between 560 and 620 million individual birds have been lost since 1980. The research article was published last year in the journal Ecology and Evolution. 
Butler says that staggering loss can be hard for us to comprehend. They can almost be overwhelming and it's quite difficult to recognize what that means for our day-to-day life. And so we wanted to explore what the consequences of those changes might be for how we experience nature, how we engage with nature, and how we can inspire people to think about how they can address that biodiversity loss. Butler lives in Norwich, a rural part of England, about 120 miles northeast of London. And this kind of agricultural setting is where one would expect to encounter a more diverse avian population. But Butler says it's also where the most dramatic avian declines are happening. That's being driven by agricultural intensification, loss of natural habitat and conversion to agricultural land, increased pesticides applications, all of those kind of factors that are designed to improve and increase yield from our agricultural land are also having negative impacts on the biodiversity associated with that. On paper, we see the numbers. We know they're dramatic, but they're difficult to notice when we go outside because we get used to what we hear. And Butler and his colleagues wanted people to actually orally experience what they were missing. So the team used existing data to construct a simulated audible record of declines in diversity and in individual birds, utilizing data collected during bird surveys conducted by an army of citizen scientists. There's a long tradition of volunteers monitoring bird populations in their communities. Numerous groups do this. For decades now, volunteers go and they find the same spot each year and they go around the same time and they look around. And most importantly, they listen. They document each bird they hear and see. The data from these counts are collected by numerous groups, including the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the National Audubon Society, among others. Traditionally, citizen scientists do their work with a notepad and pencil, and many still do though some historical recordings might exist from a limited number of sites. But complete archival audio recordings from thousands of locations of bird counts over the years, they do not exist. So Butler and his colleagues have been reconstructing what the bird song in specific locations might have sounded like in the past, based on the data collected during annual bird counts from over 200,000 locations throughout North America and Europe over a 25-year period. The team used data from the North American Breeding Bird Survey and from the Pan-European Common Bird Monitoring Scheme. And so we took those data as the foundations and we combined them with recordings of each individual species to construct a composite soundscape. So, for example, they took data from a spot in Florida in 1998. So we started with an empty five-minute sound file, and then for every individual of a given species, we inserted a short clip of that species singing to represent it. That day, data from the survey showed 30 birds were logged from nine different species, including mourning doves. The data from that day also included Chuck Will's widows, common nighthawks, blue jays, red-winged blackbirds, eastern meadowlarks, northern cardinals, northern mockingbirds, and Carolina wrens. And we layered up all of the individuals of one species and then all of the species into that same soundscape. So this is what that data reconstructed sounded like in 1998. to build a composite soundscape that 
broadly represents what it might have sounded like to be standing next to the surveyor as they were counting the birds on their patch in that year. So we have all these reconstructions of the historical soundscapes, and then we applied some acoustic indices. So these are uh, measures that quantify the acoustic energy, the energy of sound within that sound file and how it's distributed across different frequencies. So whether it covers low frequency, low pitch sounds or high pitch sounds, and we can start to measure the, the richness and the diversity of sound within that sound file. And so we ran these or quantified these indices for each constructed soundscape at each site in each year and we could then explore how these indices are changing over time as a measure of how soundscape characteristics are changing over time. So again just so you can hear the comparison this is from 1998. Then the research team took data from that same spot in Florida nearly 20 years later in 2017 and it sounded like this. Instead of 30 birds counted from nine species, only two species of birds were counted that day, two common nighthawks and one northern cardinal. Using reconstructions, the researchers could literally hear how the natural soundscape has changed over time, and so can we. Now, just to note, in the reconstruction, the scientists assumed that every bird counted also vocalized, even though the bird watchers who fill out the surveys don't specify if the birds they've counted are male or female, and females tend to sing less. But they say this is in line with data that shows that most of the birds counted in the surveys are heard and not seen. What they found overall, and what is heard in the reconstructions, natural bird soundscapes throughout both North America and Europe had declined in both intensity and in acoustic quality. Effectively, that means that the soundscapes that we're exposed to, the soundscapes that we hear, are getting quieter and they're getting less diverse. As we lose these birds, the natural world becomes quieter and quieter. The researchers found the intensity of bird soundscapes in northern and eastern parts of North America were impacted the most. Lee and I asked Dr. Kat Morrison, the paper's first author and a senior research associate, also at the University of East Anglia, whether any of these metrics were more important than the other. I mean, is volume more important than frequency or is the sheer number of the population of birds counted. What is most salient? What sticks out uh, if you were a listener? I guess it's like, imagine if you were listening to an orchestra playing. What would be the most important characteristic of that orchestra? Would it be how loud they are? How big they are? How many different types of instruments are in there? or maybe even the tunes that are getting played. It's very hard to kind of know, and it might vary for different people, but it's that kind of overwhelming feeling you get when you listen to that combined sound that we're starting to lose, and it's starting to get degraded. So how is the avian community impacted by these declines? Here again is Simon Butler, the senior author and associate professor at the University of East Anglia. 
Do you know how it's experienced by the bird populations? What's going on for them? How do they experience this decline and, and what's happening? Well, that's a, a very interesting question, but a very difficult one to answer, I guess, because understanding animal communication is, is still a very tricky research area. I guess the, the reduction in sound is predominantly coming because there's fewer individuals there. So the individual interactions between multiple birds may still be the same. It's just that there's fewer of those happening out in the landscape. So maybe the, the sort of the level of communication at an individual bird level is similar, but there's fewer species in the flock or there's fewer pairs out there that are breeding. Butler and Morrison's reconstructions illustrate audibly what we already know. North America has seen significant overall declines in both bird species richness and abundance. Europe has seen significant overall declines in abundance, so on average, sites in Europe have the same number of species, but fewer individuals. Up next, how we experience these changes and what they might mean for the evolution of some bird species. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet, oracle.com slash wallstreet. The reconstructed soundscapes from Butler, Morrison, and team are a stark reminder for us and for researchers of how much birdsong the world has already lost. Dr. Eric Jarvis is a professor of neuroscience and genetics at the Rockefeller University. Growing up here in New York City, in the Bronx, I remember as a little child, you know, back in the 1970s and so forth, that I'm hearing these birds sing outside my grandfather's house, you know, his window. And Jarvis says they were most vocal in the mornings. He calls it the dawn chorus. And I was thinking, you know what? I don't hear that anymore. Even when I go visit the Bronx, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, uh, but I, I just hear it less. Jarvis studies how humans learn to communicate, as well as how song-learning birds and other species model vocal learning. I think this is a paper with a good cause and an important issue. At the same time, yeah, my critical scientific eye is looking over it and saying, wait a minute, this may not be the best way to do this, or this is not representative. Butler and the research team used song recordings from a bird recording database that many researchers, including Jarvis and his lab at the Rockefeller University, use. However, Jarvis says that data isn't perfect. For one, it has limited geographic reach, only looking at what's happening in North America and Europe, but that is where most of the data exists right now. And Jarvis says there's not a good way of knowing if the amount of recordings from a set place are enough to present a representative sample size. So there is going to be some noise in the data, but the statistics show that even with this noisy data, uh, they're seeing significant differences over the last 25 years of soundscape decline. In the paper, Butler and his colleagues call for increased collection and curation of additional field recordings to capture all the dynamic facets of various soundscapes. 
Things like changes in human noise and any fluctuations in bird vocalization behaviors that are not currently included in their reconstructions. Jarvis says a diminished soundscape has dire implications for his own work beyond what we're not hearing. He's one of several researchers who has constructed a theory that birds develop more complex and diverse songs in order to gain attention. This strategy can lead to greater reproductive success. Those with more complex songs seem more intelligent and healthy to potential mates. The more diverse you can make your sounds, the more likely others are going to pay attention to you. The more likely you'll seem intelligent or healthy. And so this becomes a selection process for species survival or species diversification. And so by losing that diversity in the soundscape amongst these species, they may be losing ability for greater complex cognitive communication. By reducing the soundscape, we're reducing you know, that next step in the evolution of these species. Earlier, we talked about how declines in bird populations can sound like losing the instruments in an orchestra. Well, this is more like simplifying the music. And human noise could also be a factor. If birds are struggling to be heard above human sounds, research suggests there could then be less social communication happening between birds. Jarvis says that could translate into fewer birds being able to pass on knowledge that they've learned through generations of experience and evolution. He offers an example using the black-capped chickadee, plentiful across the northern United States and southern Canada. Like chickadees out there, so this is a type of songbird, black-capped chickadees. Like their name suggests, black-capped chickadees are small, white and grayish birds with black heads that look like they're wearing little hats. You know, there have been studies that show that they have learned different calls that they have that designate different predators or predator size. But under this hypothesis, the birds are competing with human-caused sounds and other environmental pressures. And there are fewer birds. There's this chickadee out there, and he's more lonely now. And he's not hearing his uncles, aunts, and all these other distant cousins, right, producing all these various different sounds that he can't imitate or learn about predator size. He's at a disadvantage by decreasing that diversity. There's evidence that increased anthropogenic noise can constrain the bandwidth within which the birds sing. They adapt somewhat, but there may be hard stops that they can't get past. Some noise that, according to Jarvis's hypothesis, might impact a species' future. Now, noise is bad for us. We've done a couple of episodes about how bad this past summer. But this study finds human noise is damaging to humans for other reasons. It dilutes our contact with nature. And researchers like Simon Butler say that could create its own negative feedback loop in how we react to what we're hearing. We're suffering from what's been termed an extinction of experience. So uh, we're spending more time in our houses, in our cars, stuck behind computers, on our mobile phones, we have fewer opportunities to engage with nature. So the quantity of those experiences is declining. And what we're talking about in this paper is then an additional dilution of experience, whereby when we do then engage with nature, actually the quality of that is also being reduced. 
Butler says we already are experiencing a quieter, less diverse future in terms of birdsong, but he fears we won't even realize just how much we've lost until it's too late. And the real concern is that, you know, my children's generation and future generations only know our current soundscapes and think that that is what it should sound like. But there is still a chance to reverse course. Birds are adaptable. For example, in a study of San Francisco's white-crowned sparrows that took place during COVID-19, researchers found that the sparrows responded to the reduced traffic and other noise reductions from the COVID-related lockdown by changing up the frequency of their songs. The study found that the birds filled the most effective song space when humans stopped taking up that same audio bandwidth. In this frequency range, it's the kind of sound that you can feel in a vibration as much as you can hear. And during the pandemic, some of that sound was eliminated. And Butler says the birds responded. The idea um, previously was birds were having to adapt the frequency with which they sing to not be dominated by the sort of the low frequency noise of human noise pollution, as it were. Once that's been reduced, they can start to explore that wider frequency range and convey more information and use a wider range of vocalizations. And we've seen several changes like that. We've seen birds moving uh, back into areas where they were previously absent from. So moving into urban areas, moving closer towards main roads, for example, because the level of traffic has been reduced. So there's there's changes in behavior, there's changes in distribution uh, that have occurred just within that short 18-month period that, that are demonstrating sort of the wider impacts on behavior that we're having on the environment, as well as the impacts on, on overall population abundance and species richness that we're also having. The study gives Butler hope. If the reconstructed soundscapes of the past can spur human actions to protect birds and the natural environment, the birds will likely respond. As the the pandemic has shown that birds do respond quite rapidly to changes in human activity, and and there are there are mechanisms there that we can employ to start to improve natural soundscapes at a local scale by thinking about those aspects. Butler says reconstructing soundscapes from species records and count data could also help to forecast future soundscapes based on projected shifts in bird ranges due to climate and other environmental changes. But the paper argues we should also step up field recordings of current soundscapes so we capture more of the dynamics that go into these natural soundtracks. One ideal way to have an impact, the researchers say, is to participate in one of the bird counting events that have been going on for decades. One such count happens annually in February. With more than half the world's population now living in urban areas, counting birds will take buy-in from city dwellers, like my former colleague Robert Lee Holtz, walking in his beloved Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. It was for the first time that I had any appreciation for um, how uh, much nature there is in what we think of as a sterile urban landscape. Lee likened his birdsong epiphany to removing a cultural barrier or blindness that has changed his view of the city. Uh, I would guess I was raised in a world where nature was somewhere out there, you know, like in the West, you know, in a national park. 
uh, and where I spent my time in a city was a fundamentally unnatural place. Well, what this kind of taught me was that that's not true. That's not true. We are in nature. We are part of nature. We exist in it. Nature exists with us whether we like it or not, whether it's the beautiful birds or the rats that live in the tree roots <laughs> over there. Next time on The Future of Everything, we talk with a naturalist about the patterns and habits of migratory birds. He'll share some of the new discoveries about these mysterious travelers that could impact their future and ours, and what more can be done to save migratory birds. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. We say thanks and farewell this week to Deputy Editor Lee Camping-Carter. She's taking on a new role as head of newsletters at the Wall Street Journal. We wish her well. Reporting this week from Robert Lee Holtz and Caitlin Nicholas. This episode's fact checker is Catherine Seifer. Our sound designer is Sarah Gibb-Alaska. Kateri Yoakum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.